This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we look at the ongoing UAW strike against GM, the first strike since 2007, and we also do a deeper look at the Green New Deal in the wake of worldwide climate strike actions. UCSB labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein joins us with his take on the United Auto Workers strike that has 50,000 General Motors auto workers on picket lines. Nelson shares his views of the strike, the union leadership, and the impact he thinks this strike can have on politics and work life, that is, reviving and reshaping industries and workplaces and the political order. We then talk to Daniel Aldana Cohen. He directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative at University of Pennsylvania and is the director of Jacobin's series on the Green New Deal. And we're talking to him about the Green New Deal and how it intersects with the housing crisis, racism, inequality, energy and food systems, not to mention the political and socioeconomic order while seeking to decarbonize the economy. Plus, it's reviving the left. It's not pie in the sky. And we get Daniel Aldana Cohen's take on why. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to talk about the auto strike in this segment. The strike of 49,000 General Motors workers, which began on Monday, September 16th, is the first time that there's been a GM strike since 2007, and that was a year before the government bailed out the auto industry in the global financial crisis. And since that time, GM has increased its profits, making $35 billion in the past three years. Many of the plants are slated to close, and little of that money has made it into workers' paychecks. Strikers want to end pay and benefit divisions between temporary and permanent employees and increase job security. But labor historian Nelson Lichtenstein, who's with us today, says the strike could have a big impact on U.S. politics and work life. But if so, it'll have to break with the patterns of conflict and accommodation so long entrenched in a once iconic industry. And we're going to go over all of that, not just the two-tier structure, but a unit that actually fights for its members instead of keeping them in line. Nelson is a labor historian at UCSB, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He writes about American political economy, including the automotive industry and Walmart. His books include A Biography of the Labor Leader, Walter Ruther, and State of the Union, A Century of American Labor. The most recent books, I think I'm getting this right Nelson, you can correct me. Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy, the Port Huron Statement, Sources and Legacy of the New Left's Founding Manifesto, the Retail Revolution, how Walmart created a brave new world of business, the right and labor in American politics, and probably many more. But Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Glad to be here. Thanks. And so let's just begin with the basics of this strike. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the about 50,000 workers, which, by the way, I mean, it just shows the changing shape of the, the company and the auto industry. It's way down from the hundreds of thousands who used to be employed by General Motors. They've offshored and moved partly to China and things of that sort. But, you know, I think, I think that the two basic issues from the point of view of the workers in the strike is, one, as a result of the bankruptcy of General Motors and then the 
recovery and the, and the weakness of the union, they have not caught up with wages and conditions that they benefits they would have had 10 years ago uh, as a result of the bankruptcy. And so General Motors is making money now, and they want to be made whole. They want to, you know, well, just simply higher wages and maintain their health benefits and, and things of that sort. That's kind of rough distributive justice there. The, the company's doing well, and so that's, now it's time for us to stop our sacrifices. The second thing, though, is, which is really part of the same issue from the point of view of the workers, is that GM and all the companies, all of them, have, you've had this proliferation of non-standard work. That, that, that makes it sound too good. It's really, you know, cheating workers by giving them less money for doing the same work or, you know, sort of outsourcing it and creating sort of subsidiaries which pay less, all sorts of things of that sort. It's very uh, great two tiers, you know, people New new hires get less than the old and never will catch up. So, you know, you have uh, situations where two people are doing the same work, really, in the factory, and one's making, you know, considerably more than the other. And, and even the workers who are making more money, who are, you know, who've been there, they, they don't like that. They resent it. I mean, they can see it's dangerous because obviously they'll be replaced, but it just creates uh, divisions, which, which just makes it very uncomfortable to work in the factory. I mean, it's really like, it's almost like a, a kind of condition of harassment, a kind of permanent harass, sense of harassment. Anyway, so those are, the, those are the two main grievances the workers have, and they're striking, and they're in a fairly moderately strong position in the sense that, well, we, the, the, the company's made money. That we, we aren't in a recession yet, although it's possible, mm-hmm. but there's clearly the company has the money, and they, in fact, have offered a few something, but the, the workers want get, to get more. I do think there's larger issues at stake here, and I, well, we can, we can get into that in, in a second. Okay, go but ahead. I wanted to just go back a little bit and, and to talk about, you remember, what is it, a year ago they announced the closing of five plants, uh, four right. here and one in Canada, right. and the yeah. layoffs of, I think, what, 15,000 workers, something close to that. And that was in violation of the terms of the 2015 contract, which banned such closing and layoffs during that term. Uh, But the union didn't do anything much beyond express dismay. I think more happened Mm -hmm. in Canada. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the abdication of union leadership there. How could they do that? And then what are they doing now about plant closing and layoffs? You talked about this really horrible issue of having workers earning different wages for the same work standing side by side. That isn't just in auto, it's elsewhere too. But there's these other things, you know, like immediate layoffs and plant closures, even the cutting off of health benefits during the strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the issue of plant closings, I mean, it's been endemic for 30, 40 years. The union tries to sort of, the minimal thing is protect its own workers. That is, if your plant closes, okay, then you can get a job somewhere else. And that, so that you know, that can work to some extent, although it doesn't, the real problem remains there. But the real question is, who's in charge of the investment strategy of the company? Is it purely left to the company itself, or does it have some social character to it. And here, you know, the, both the left and the right, and the Trumpite right, have weighed in on that. The industrial policy uh, of people from, you know, decades back, you know, the, the planners, some more visionary union leaders like the old Walter Ruther, they would say, you know, no, this is not something that the private capital can make decisions by itself. These are so, social and, and politically determined issues, that is, the closing of plants that should be, you know, subject to negotiation. And then, of course, more recently, the, the right... I think in a demagogic way has, has waited on this Trump himself. So, I mean, that, those issues, I think, you know, can be put on the table. Now, General Motors, I have to say, is a structurally strong position. And the reason is, aside, putting aside for a moment the terrible union leadership at 
at mm-hmm. UAW. We'll get to that in a second. But putting that aside is the 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 fact that the that none of the that the union has been unable to organize the non-union so-called transplants, the Japanese, German, Korean plants, which are now in the South, which generally pay lower wages, fewer benefits, uh, you know, etc., means that uh, General Motors can always say, and with a certain kind of, you know, justification in terms of the logic of capital, mm-hmm. hey, you know, you can't ask for this because we've got competition, not just, not in just Mexico or China, but we've got it right here in the American South. And so that's, a, that's another sort of political issue, really, uh, which, which the, the union has been caught in. Uh, and it, it, many decades of the reason for that and the reason that the South remains a kind of anti-union reactionary, you know, bulwark. But that, that's a structural problem. And I think that it, cannot, it, can only, it can't be solved only on the picket line, it has to be solved in a larger political fashion, you know. So, if, I mean, there are, for example, some p- people, I think Warren and Bernie have put in mm-hmm. legislation to abolish right to work, you know, in the entire country. That's the, the anti-union uh, uh, a law that exists in many southern states. So that's, that's one, one part of it. And of, course, and, of course, the union leadership, I mean, this is just a, a tragedy, has gotten itself wrapped up in this horrible corruption and and the reason right. for that i think that the deep roots of that are the union management cooperation that began 30 years ago and it created these sort of training centers and slush funds that the union just found too tempting to keep their hands out of so it's just another story but i'll get to that and that yeah. goes on i maybe just take a little segue there because yeah. you mentioned it in terms nelson of the partnership that the union made with GM. And so that means that the leadership sees itself more, maybe you can just talk about this, as the partner of GM than as the leader of the workers and their rights. And maybe in answering that, you could just say, not just the corruption, but also not fighting effectively the outsourcing. The two are are linked together. The the corruption comes out of the partnership's idea, I mean, just unquestionably. And I mean, look, it's partly a, began 30 years ago, 40 years ago, really, when the industry began to have problems and the union was on the defensive and they and you know there was a kind of argument and not just by union leaders by all sorts of liberal and lefty (laughs) people uh, commenting on okay we need a kind of non-adversarial relationship in these factories you know etc there's a kind of various schemes and the union bought into that and you see that i mean the companies did a little bit too that you see i just saw mary berry who's the president of gm she was giving a speech and there was a sort of underneath her podium was a you know GM logo and a UAW logo, kind of in. in uh. you know. So there was a kind of, I mean, that's, you know, but so they bought into that. And what that did was that demobilizes the membership, teaches the wrong lesson that solidarity is between not themselves, but with the company. And it means that uh, really, I think, it, in, especially today, when there's a kind of insurgent mood in the, in the country and a, and a kind of, you know, sense of let's confront capital, you know, more directly, then here's a union which has been preaching cooperation for. 30 years. It's just a it, corruption is almost the, the least of the problems that, that creates, you know. Well, let's just do do a little bit more on that, Nelson, because you just, yeah. you know, you just talked about 
the mood. We've come out of a year of spectacular public sector strikes and in right-to-work straits as well Mm -hmm. that have garnered public support. And as you said, more people now want to join unions than not. Unions have lost, Mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly, their tarnished image. In this case, they might deserve some of it. But on the other hand, you know, can you gauge what kind of support there is for this strike and whether or not, you know, the union leadership is responding in a way that will, you know, make a difference? Well, I think the, the, the interesting and the, important, and the hopeful thing about it is that despite all the, the, the problems of the, of the union itself, and I think not sort of being out there and, and being a public a voice, the leadership on, on this, there is tremendous support for this strike, I think. Mm. And one of the things I advocated and some of the things I've written is that, that well, at least the Democrats and others as well, should, people should pour onto the picket lines. I mean, there's nothing that says you know, the picket line has to be composed only of workers in the, in the factory where they're employed. I think we should have, you know, really the kind of massive picket lines we had in, in both the 60s and decades before but on, on all sorts of issues. I think that would be a tremendous sense of solidarity and also would, would I think, encourage the, the workers themselves to, to have a sense of that they're more empowered. I think that's the kind of thing. It's happened in Los Angeles with the teacher strike, you know, and I think it will happen with the Kaiser strike coming up, etc. So I think we need to, I think all strikes need to be that way. I think strikes are social movements. They're, they're political. They transcend the, the legal straitjacket in which they've been put for so long. And I think we, we're on the verge of doing that. So that's one thing. And then clearly that will make it very clear that, that you know, there is a, we have a class war going on and, and we, we need to wage it. <laughs> right. I want to just say your article, What's at Stake in the General Motors Strike by Nelson Lichtenstein, is going to appear in dissent or maybe it it's just in, did. In dissent right now. Oh, it's in dissent right on now. The web, on the webpage right now, yeah. Okay, great. And one of the things that you mentioned is what you just did right now, and it's huge, I should say huge in Bernie's lingo, yeah, that yeah. the Democratic candidate for president, all of them have endorsed the GM strike. Bernie's been on the picket line, I think, and if not, mm-hmm. will be. And you've just said that it's really important to keep up those picket lines and to yeah. show the support for this kind of strike. Now, I want to go to something that's a little bit, you know, more difficult, and that okay. has been the company's offensive on wages and moving, mm-hmm. you've mentioned outsourcing and moving to non-union mm-hmm. states, the South. But there's also the expansion into high tech, which part of it is the electric automobile. But I think mm-hmm. Mike Parker was the one that says that GM is in process of becoming a software producing company. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the new jobs are going to be in software engineers and the UAW has mm-hmm. not really made this an issue. So how do you see that part? Well, right. I mean, one of the things that unions have to do and historically have, successful ones have done, they leap from one technology to the next. I mean, you know, uh, we have successful examples of that. Longshore, they used to have nets and, and you know, and pallets and li- forklifts, and now we have containers. And the ILWU successfully leaped from one to the other. And going back to the 19th century, printers went from, you know, uh, putting type in by their hands to the linotype machine and then later on to other technology. So, so unions have to always be able to, to move from one to the other. And of course, the companies, the strategy of, of all these companies is always to, let's find a green field or a green technological field, and that'll be totally non-union, and then the, 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 then the, the, the old unionists will sort of wither on the vine. But, uh, but unions have to be aggressive. And that, I mean, let me say this, this is why, this is why I, I think that it requires uh, kind of more than just the people who work in the factory to, to be mobilized. Mm. I mean, you need, you need to, you, we need to stop middle management from going to work. 
you know, we need to stop the, the, the engineers from going to work uh, uh, and, to, and, and, to, and to appeal to them. Uh, and, you know, GM will, and you, you could, GM could get an injunction against that. They already have done that. But, but we have to be extra, extra uh, legal and extra parliamentary. I mean, it's like the civil rights movement. We, you know, we, you know there, there are laws, but sometimes they have to be abridged and, and broken. Uh, and I think uh, th- th- that Mike, I know Mike, Mike is absolutely correct. He's been d- doing this for years. The, the, the uh, you, you know, uh, you need to, whatever goes into making a car, no matter where it is or how it is, that is something that the union should, you know, try to, to organize that kind of labor. And, and, and the distinctions between professionals and middle managers and these are all these are all formalistic legal distinctions which have which when it comes to the real nature of of, of who produces produces what for their exchange for their labor you know those distinctions have to be uh, wiped away really great nelson lichtenstein now the other side of that is you know i remember at the time that it went into i guess you'd call it receivership with government after the well, crisis yes, yes. it wasn't quite like that but there was a caravan that went from detroit where workers who were laid off wanted to reconvert and to do all electric and green new vehicles mm-hmm. you know which would mm-hmm. now of course be part of the green new yeah, deal right, that didn't right ever become part of of the union's plank, it seems to me. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about this now that electric cars are going to be the wave of the future unless, you know, Trump gets away with recreating gas guzzlers. What do you think? All of these things, by the way, are not are not simply private. We, we, the distinction between I mean, this is private company, public. This is all. These are all. These are all uh, created as a result of both government funding. Sometimes, I mean, the GM came out of bankruptcy with all the with these billions of dollars of government loans, which means that it, 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 it's a public company in the, in the fullest public sense. That is, it should be subject to public and democratic control. And the same is true with new technologies. None of these none of these new technologies are. are Purely private, they're all they're all public in a sense, funded by the public or, or in, in some way, and so therefore um, the 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 unions. Uh, by the way, of course, should, should welcome the Green New Deal, not for some moralistic reason, because to save the planet, but because the 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 it, it's all tied together, and just as the New Deal. Uh, made the distinction between what was private and what was public. It, 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 it eviscerated those divisions. The General Motors could not, in fact, control its property. That was, that was what the Wagner Act said. No, you, you can't control your property as you wish. The same is true today. If we're going to have electric vehicles or electric, all sorts of, uh, you know, the apparatus that will go along with that in terms of roads and in terms of charging stations, then this is, this is a public issue. And, the, and one of the things is if, you're gonna have a, if we're going to pay for it, we, then workers have to have rights, workers had, and we have to eliminate all these phony uh, obstacles to workers having the right to uh, organize. And I think, uh, 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 you know, whether it's in the South or the North, or whether it's the whole uh, 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 encrusted nature of the labor law, which makes it so difficult to organize, we need to eliminate all that, just wipe it away. It seems like there isn't a better time in a way, because there's, as you've mentioned, we've seen a lot of strikes, we've seen a lot of public support, we have some, you know, backward elements in the union leadership. And you've argued, Nelson, right here, that these pick it should be, you know, the locus of massive community and social support. The other side of it is also that one way forward that people see is electing more, you know, democratic socialists into Congress like AOC and others and Sanders. Do you see that as a, as a you know, viable strategy and will it make a difference? 
Well, I am in favor of the, the left wing of the Democratic Party. I am not, at this particular, another issue of not fetishizing the question of independent political action at this particular moment versus the Democrats. But I do think that, you know, when Bernie and, and, and Warren and a few others say, you know, we're going to, you know, only raise money from, you know, by small groups, etc. There's a kind of, they're, they're moving things to the left, although I don't want to get too invested in, in either of them. But I do think that's important. And clearly, I think that uh, the this is a time for bold initiatives. And I think that, I mean, one thing that Trump has done that I think in a way might have a, a silver lining is he's a norm breaker, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, all right, Norms are going to be broken. I mean, it's it's I, I, let's break some. I, I you know if it, 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 it let's do it. And uh, this is the time to 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 break those. So so when it comes to the labor law, I, I think which has been so rotten, I just think you know it's time for a, a absolutely radical uh, um, uh, change in that, and which will wipe out seventy years of conservative uh, uh, you know amendments and judicial amendments to the labor law. Just wipe it out and uh, create a situation where. Uh, where, 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 uh, when it comes to union uh, choice, uh, you know, employers just stay out. It's not none of your business. I think that the, you know, that we do have sixty or seventy percent of the population in favor of unions, and if they, if workers are actually able to express that, it would have a revolutionary impact in large parts of the country, especially the South. This is really good, and I just, I guess I want to just end on your optimism here and ask you finally, because, you know, we're talking about this specific strike, then there is support for it. There's a lot of other strikes going on. The mood in the public is, you know, to have more union representation, more democratic representation altogether. And in this sense, I guess you could say is this is extreme right wing government has finally mobilized people you know, or galvanized people's I mean, I anger. The, let's I say. think this strike will end in a... I mean, well, at least as stand, things stand now, I, I, I don't think the UAW leadership wants to make this strike go on forever, and they will, it will end in a, in, a, in a modest, you know, success. But, I mean, as things stand now, now I think you could transform it. I mean, if, you ha- if a thing went on for a few weeks and you had thousands of new people on the picket lines, I mean, it could become a kind of real thing. Uh, I, but, I mean, at, I, I can't foresee the future. I don't know what's going on inside the minds of UAW leaders, or even workers for that matter. But I do think that it's not going to fail, that's for sure. It's going to be a a success of some degree, you know. Well, thank you so much for those sentiments, Nelson Lichtenstein, and you can read his piece at Dissent right now online called What's at Stake in the General Motors Strike. We didn't go into all of it, but in this piece that Nelson has written, he goes into the history of the UAW and the strikes from the past that you know literally were glorious in some ways. So I want to thank you so much. And what's the book you're working on right now? Oh, well, right now I'm working on an economic history of the, of the Clinton administration. And uh, I just say this, Clinton ended up neoliberal, but he didn't begin that way. And, that's, and I want to show, show how and why that took place, how and why that happened. And look for that from Nelson Lichtenstein. He's a labor historian at UCSB, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. Thanks for joining us today, Nelson. You're welcome. Thanks. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. The following interview with Daniel Aldana Cohen was recorded just a few days after the global climate strike actions of September 20th. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to be discussing the climate mobilizations, the Green New Deal, and a lot more in this segment. And I'm really pleased to have Daniel Aldana Cohen with us for the first time. Before I introduce him, 
I just want to say that in so many ways, things are converging right now as we see climate strike, auto strike, and literally the crumbling of neoliberal politics around the globe. And they all sort of fit into each other and intersect. And that's going to be the subject on this segment today with Daniel Aldana Cohen. He's an assistant professor of sociology at Penn, where he also directs the Sociospatial Climate Collaborative, or SC2. And he's also a senior fellow with the Data for Progress. He's a member of the policy team for People's Actions Homes Guarantee Campaign. He's a co-author of a book that's coming out in November from Verso called A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. And most importantly, I could say, or very importantly, he's editing the Jacobin Magazine series on the Green New Deal. If you Google Daniel Aldana Cohen, you'll see all of his big pieces in Jacobin, but also in The Nation and elsewhere. Daniel Aldana Cohen, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you for having me, Susie. This is great. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it because what we're seeing right now is a kind of culmination and bringing together of a lot of movements. And there's support all around. It's no longer kind of single focus movements. And it's also young people leading the way, especially on climate. But the work that you're doing in terms of literally a Green New Deal here in the United States, but I was just in Britain and they're they're copying and talking for a global Green New Deal, which is much more than just decarbonizing the economy, but it's also about massive public investment that will address, you know, the economic crisis and the failures of neoliberalism and capitalism. So maybe we should just begin right now by saying, who are the actors in this movement that, you know, for not just the Green New Deal, but the climate strike? And I guess that's a way of asking you what the leadership is or is not doing the political leadership. Great. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) this is a really exciting moment. And just as you said, the Green New Deal stands out, I think, in the long history of the climate movement because you're finally seeing the intersection of many different kinds of groups, progressive groups, labor unions, youth movements, racial justice movements, community movements, so on, the kind of convergence of struggles that we've been hoping for, hoping to see for so long. And I just want to note quickly that, and we'll get back to this, I'm sure, a huge part of that is, just as you were saying, the fact that we're now talking about green investment, that investment, in a way, is the key word for climate action now, And this is really startlingly different from the way that we talked about climate change action in the terrible neoliberal years of the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, when it was always sort of a question of who was going to bear the biggest burden, whether it was in terms of global negotiations or like within country kind of debate or even thinking about consumerism, it was always, you know, what's the most effective way to suffer through this? And now I think it's really a question of how fast can we go and how many people can we pull along with us? That's a very, very different way of thinking. And that that really attests to the power of the climate movement, some changes in technology, and then some very good organizing. Great. That's a a really good start. And I know that in, you know, the Jacobin print magazine, the one that was just before the one that has come out now, you have a big article on social housing. Well, it's literally about, not called social housing, but it's about how housing crisis converges with the climate crisis and what can be done about that. And it draws on the possibilities that you saw when you were in Vienna. And that just, that makes the reading really worth it, because I think you talked about social housing there as 
temples of public luxury and what could be expanded. So maybe you could just kind of go into housing and then that will take us, I believe, into all the problems about the market and the obstacles that we see. Sure. That sounds great. And we'll make sure to come around to the climate strikes, which yes. um, have put this in the news. But yeah, I think housing is a really interesting way to start. And you know, often we think of climate change as an energy issue. And one of the major drawbacks of that is that it ends up being not a very visceral conversation. I mean, if one Googles, you know, wind turbines, which I've done many times, uh, you almost never even see a picture with a person in it. It's just this kind of technological sublime out in a mountainside or something like that. So part of the challenge, I think, for the movement and for those of us in academia and, and who are writing about this is and doing the policy work, where do we see the real convergences between the climate crisis and people's lives and really the horrible amounts of suffering that characterize capitalism right now? So on the emission side, you know, homes in the U.S. are responsible for about one-sixth of carbon emissions. If you add in transportation by, by car, which is you know, mostly to and from homes, that's another six. So that's about a third of emissions. So it's a huge driver of emissions is where we live and how. If you flip it around, what is it like to live in a home in the United States? How great is it? And the answer is not great. You have about 20 million Americans who are spending half of their income on mortgage or rent. And you have almost another 20 million Americans spending a third of their income on mortgage or or rent. So that is a huge burden. And then if you look at energy costs within homes, I think a lot of people don't realize this, they're punishingly high for most (laughs) folks. So one third of Americans can't afford their utility bills. I mean, and it's the that, next biggest cost after the mortgage, and sometimes more than the mortgage. That's right. That's right. So they can't afford their utility bills means, like, have had a shut-off notice, keep their home at an unsafe temperature, make sacrifices on spending on things like food. And one study finds that the single main reason that Americans take out payday loans is to pay the utility bills. Wow. So this is no joke, and it's, of course, racialized, like all other forms of inequality in the U.S. and the mid-Atlantic, half of black households can't afford their utility bills. And so the crisis of energy really does converge in American homes, and it is absolutely not a problem that you solve, you know, just by changing the thermostat. I mean, on the contrary, and actually, the other night, I couldn't believe it took me so long, but, you know, I'm a tenant, and I looked at the furnace in my apartment, and there's a little sticker on it, and it says, you know, compare the efficiency of your furnace before you purchase. So my landlord had purchased this furnace. And, you know, it was basically the minimum allowable efficiency, 20% lower than the maximum. And this is many years ago. I mean, this cost me hundreds of dollars a year just because there's this insanely inefficient furnace in my home, which my landlord has no incentive to fix because I'm a tenant. So the, the crisis of energy, the crisis of waste, the crisis of climate does intersect with these like fundamental pocketbook issues that are, again, driving people to take out payday loans. And you also, I mean, one thing that you left out, but, you know, is obvious in most cities across this country, is that there's a half a million people who are homeless. And that's, you know, not just because of the skyrocketing of rent, but it's also all of the other associated costs that drive people out of their homes. That's right. There's a half a million people who are homeless. And then actually, if you start thinking about people in very precarious situations, you know, moved in, in in rooms and families' homes and so on, the number is much bigger. The estimate is that there is a shortage of seven and a half million homes for very low-income people, and then you have constant evictions. You have a whole other series of problems. So I advocated in this Jacobin piece about now, you know, 10 million units of social housing in 10 years, no carbon, beautifully designed units that would really drive the development of a kind of no-carbon construction workforce 
talking about from energy efficiency to no carbon materials like no carbon cement, this would radically displace construction in the private market. Right now, the private market builds close to one and a half million homes a year. And I'm proposing that most of those new homes should be built efficiently, no carbon and walkable or public transit rich neighborhoods. And they'd be social housing, you know, people from multiple different, you know, income groups living together and really building a kind of a new form of urban habitation, if you will. And now with, with People's Action, we're talking about a homes guarantee, 12 million new units of social housing. And I think the idea is that you know, we, what we need for housing is a big a demand that's comparable to, in a way, the idea of a Green New Deal that's comparable to Medicare for All, free college tuition. And what People's Action has really come, come up with is the idea of a homes guarantee. Like, everybody is guaranteed a home. In order to make sure that that happens, we don't rely on the market. We don't tweak the market. None of that works. We've found this out over 40 years, 50 years. What we have to do is a new model of housing that involves significant construction of very high-quality non-market social housing. So what you've just done is take a big leap into Daniel Aldana Cohen, and that's exactly where I want to go, because you write about the Green New Deal and what it promises, and that it's much more radical than, say, just the New Deal, which ultimately saved capitalism for capitalists, but this aspires to be something much grander and saves the planet as well. And that kind of is the tie-in to the climate strike that is the big issue in the news. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, what's standing in the way of, and not just Trump, but I mean in terms of, you know, politics in general that would be standing in the way of financing something that would obviously, you know, be a huge boost for the economy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a couple quick things as we develop, as we kind of move towards the enemies of this. The Green New Deal has elements that I think anybody can understand, like a jobs guarantee, right? I mean, that's sort of similar to public works. We can easily understand how home building would create jobs. What I think is less clear to people is when people say, you know, Green New Dealers say, we need to invest targeted investments in frontline communities, racialized working class communities. What does that actually look like? What does that mean? And I think often, What the right does is that, and even many liberals, they say, oh, you know, all the social policy in the Green New Deal is just an add-on. It's just a luxury, and you're actually, you know, you're holding us back from the core goal of decarbonization. And what I was trying to get at before is that actually what something like a Green New Deal for housing is, is it's not an add-on, it's a concretization or a specification of the promise of egalitarian decarbonization. I mean, we're going to need to live somewhere. Millions of people will be displaced by sea level rise, by drought by fire, millions more people will come to the United States from other places, and we need to find a way to decarbonize and house people at the same time. So it's not, the social policy in the Green New Deal is not about adding extra things that make it harder to pass. It's about actually fleshing out the vision of what concretely decarbonization looks like. And I've shown, you know, I work at Data for Progress now, I'm a fellow there, and we've already released polling showing that virtually everything I've described to you already is extremely popular. So people like these ideas. I think they don't want to have to not be able to afford their utility. You know, they understand that the government needs to invest to retrofit people's homes. The real estate industry, Wall Street, the fossil fuel industry are real allies of each other. And they're not our allies. And I think you're really you're right to point to this question of enemies because I think in this primary with so many candidates and the internet and so many PDFs We've become obsessed with plans and to the exclusion almost of a power analysis. And actually, Bernie was on MSNBC the other night, and he said something really smart. He said, you know, talking with uh, Chris Hayes, you're like, you know, Chris, 
I'm not going to do Bernie's accent. I think I have a good impression, but not, not ready for radio. He said, you know, Chris, I wish I could tell you that I had a 16-point plan and that was enough to fix this. But fundamentally, the issue is you have to destroy the power of the fossil fuel industry. So I think we do need, on the one hand, a very clear story and a very clear set of alliances, housing movements, climate movement, labor movement, around specific ideas, like a Green New Deal for housing, I think. At the same time, we have to recognize that this isn't going to live or die on the 17th bullet point on page four of the PDF. This is going to live or die on, is that coalition, in fact, big enough, strong enough, is it fighting enough to kind of take down the powers that have a, a stranglehold on politics and political economy? I'd like to hear you address this just a little bit more, because what you're proposing through the Green New Deal, and as I understand it, is something that can be begun. It's not necessarily just a revolutionary demand that is only possible with the overthrow of capitalism, but something that, you know, everybody who proposed it here and who, you know, aligns with it globally sees it as realizable. So... Let's talk about that. Like you mentioned, the enemies being fossil fuel industry, insurance, and construction, I think you said. Do you see it as having to compete with already existing fossil fuel production or match their costs? I mean, they have massive investments in fixed capital. This might get too technical, but I'm really just wanting to see like how you see this transitionally, at least in terms of something that can be done now. Great. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think there, there are two strands here that I think are, we can separate out here. One of them is, yeah, how, actually, how powerful is fossil fuel? I, I think the fossil fuel industry is way more vulnerable than Wall Street. And in some ways, it's sort of the, it's the biggest initial barrier, but it's also the most brittle. I mean, the fossil fuel companies' values are based on their reserves, their proven reserves, how much oil they have in the ground that they can point to and say, we're going to burn this. The amount that's in those reserves is roughly five times what can safely be burnt without us tipping into kind of very dangerous, irreversible climate change territory. So as a result, nobody really thinks that all that oil is going to be burnt. No one really believes that. And in fact, the governor of the Bank of England, David Carney, I believe, is warning about this all the time. And so we call these stranded assets and saying that there is a huge amount of financial risk baked in because... Even if we do overshoot all of our targets and the worst things happen, the idea that we're going to actually get to every last drop is just absurd. So these companies are overvalued, you know, something like five times. Now, there are analogies in things like real estate. I mean, you have billions of dollars in places like Miami Beach that are going to be wiped out overnight Mm -hmm. in a particular storm. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. So I actually do think that it is very reasonable to imagine that we're very close right now to a recession that that recession is going to wipe out, in combination with climate disasters, a lot of money, a lot of value from certain players that won't come back. And that would make me, to be honest, in many ways, much more worried about eco-apartheid, about a system where all the benefits of greening go to Wall Street and its allies, even if there is greening, and that it's too slow, and that you have this sort of hyper-racialized nightmare. And we've seen even very little glimpses of that in the U.S. If you just look in New York recently, a few months ago, there was an electricity outage. And Con Edison, the utility, decided to cut off power to Canarsie, which is not only a largely black neighborhood, but a neighborhood that's gotten much more black in the last 20 years because of gentrification. So basically, Con Ed kept the power on in neighborhoods in Brooklyn that have gone much more white during mm-hmm. gentrification mm-hmm. and flipped the power off for neighborhoods like Canarsie and neighborhoods around Canarsie, which have gotten much more black. I mean, I think that kind of extremely spatially, socially, racially uneven 
sort of future of the energy world is, is I think, what we could possibly expect. I guess to your other question, just briefly, you know, this is something we can achieve. I think the coalitional dynamics are really interesting. If you look again at New York City, which is the city that I study recently, sort of around Earth Day, basically just before Earth Day in, in this past April, they passed the country's most aggressive low carbon energy bill for buildings. And this was a bill that was strenuously opposed by the Real Estate Board of New York, REBNY, very, very powerful industry. And that same industry had opposed an earlier version of this bill in 2009 when Bloomberg was mayor and killed it. And the difference between 2009 and 2019 is that in 2019, the housing movement, especially New York City Communities for Change, came very hard in this coalition and said, we're going to fight for this. We know that our members uh, need to live you know, in a, a habitable city, and habitable climate, and we're going to join this coalition to fight, against, to fight for low-carbon buildings, make sure that affordable housing is protected in the bill. That was their big victory. And it was only when you bring the housing movement into the fight that you actually get a strong enough progressive coalition to destroy REPNY, actually. The bill passed like 45 to 2. So I think you're already seeing small little wins in the kind of Green New Deal logic of equitable decarbonization. And to the extent that you are seeing those wins, it is very much labor, housing, progressive political groups, grassroots pressure, environmental groups working together. So that, that Green New Deal coalition is already in action, and it's really exciting. That takes us to the climate strike. I want to go back to this in one second, but let's talk just a little bit about, you know, what you've seen with young people, you know, in the streets worldwide demanding that their leaders listen to the science and don't remain silent on it and listen to the youth and protect the future of the planet. I'm assuming that that this entire movement agrees with things like the Green New Deal. What's the impact of having that kind of pressure on the political conversation and on actually getting something done? I mean, you know, it's funny. Sunrise as a movement is not very old. I believe it's 2017 that Sunrise is incorporated. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet now they are the face in many ways of the climate movement. And it's a combination of strategic savvy and I think a, a real generational shift. And the Washington Post just did a poll found over 50% of American teenagers are terrified of climate change. A quarter of American teenagers report that they've taken some form of climate action recently. One out of seven has participated in a school walkout before today. And you see, you know, among millennials, sort of something similar. So, you know, I think symbolically it's very, very powerful to have young people, and Greta Thunberg is the sort of epitome of this, to have young people saying, like, this, like, this is not working. You know, this system is not remotely adequate for us. I think there is an open question with elections, you know, voter turnout. I don't know. But at the same time, if you look at AOC, which she's been able to achieve, you know, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an issue like of the Green New Deal, which I have been writing about for the last few years, but as just kind of an idea floating around, suddenly is now supported by every major Democratic presidential candidate. And I don't think you get that without the rhetorical and the organizing weight of a new youth movement, the likes of which we haven't seen in climate change you know, right. ever before. Okay. So they used to say, oh, save our grandchildren. And now the grandchildren are like up in our faces. That's right. And I, that's a good place to go, Daniel Aldana Cohen. And we're talking about the Green New Deal and, you know, the impact of having all of these different issues converge, essentially, and the Green New Deal in a way as a kind of policy solution to these problems, or at least a way to deal with it. And I think I saw in Britain, it says it's something like it's not just a particular suite of policies, but a multi-decade effort 
effort to write a more humane, sustainable, and democratic social contract. And whereas the New Deal ultimately saved capitalism for capitalists, the Green New Deal aspires to channel all of this mass mobilization in a more radical direction. Okay, so now I just want to go and we have another four or five minutes to talk about, so how will this be different? If you if you think about even Trump and Bannon came in talking about spending a trillion on in infrastructure. Everybody knows we need infrastructure. So that's what the uh, New Deal projects of the 1930s did, and they were often directly operated by the state. We've talked about who some of the, uh, uh, you know, which industries are obstacles to it, and, and you know, even the, the notion of public private partnerships are often just a money suck, I think, as you put it, and doesn't directly get to that kind of investment. So how do you see this happening, this part of it, where the state is then spending the money directly? How will it be financed? Is it just taxing wealth? Have a go. Thanks. Well, yeah, just just the big questions. Yeah. Let's say we can break it into two pieces here, right? The question is, like, how is this anything other than just saving capitalism for itself? That it's a really important question. So the International Energy Association projects that under business as usual scenario, energy use would grow over 40% globally. Energy use in the U.S. is already falling, but it needs to fall faster. So the International Energy Association also projects that if we want to keep warming at a safe level, you know, a decent chance of keeping it at or under 2 degrees Celsius, then global energy demand has to increase by only 9%. And what that really means then is that for us to avoid catastrophic warming, Either the rich are going to do a kind of carbon Volcker shock and just eradicate the consumption of the bottom half or the bottom two-thirds of the sort of social structure, or we find a very equitable way of transitioning from the physical consumption of things we don't necessarily need, and in particular, the consumption of very wealthy people who drive carbon emissions wildly disproportionately. We have to transition away from that system to a system of social goods, of spending time with our loved ones and from living in kind of high-quality places where we can play sports, go to the theater, hang out, make art, that sort of thing. Hmm. And so I've argued in earlier work, and, and then we'll, we argue with my co-authors again in A Planet to Win, we need kind of one last stimulus. And, and what the point of that is, is not to reboot economic growth for another major multi-decade cycle. It's kind of the opposite, is we have to create the physical conditions under which we can then lead much less materially intensive lives. And this really does line up with a huge number of demands of left movements historically. The labor movement has always fought for shorter working days. The women's movement has always fought for a more equal division of care work and a more convenient division of care work. Along women's urbanist movements, and there's been some success in Vienna and, and elsewhere, you know, saying that, you know, daycare should be close to the home. It should be accessible. Um, we shouldn't have every single house with its own little lawn carved up and no one can watch each other's kids. So I think that with the Green New Deal, what you see emerging is a real vision of communal luxury, but that that communal luxury is based on shared public goods, not based on hyper-privatized, hyper-material consumption. So there's no question the vision I'm talking about really takes you away from the core premise of capitalism, which is endless material growth. Yes, I think we need new investment to get us there, but it's a very different kind of investment, always looking at shared public goods, at safety, and at really facilitating us to spend time with loved ones in ways that are pleasurable. The second point is control over investment. Obviously, let's say if, there's, if you had to boil capitalism down to a couple of things, it would be the power over the worker of the investor and the investor's class 
um, the capitalist class control over investment. And I think we are very much with the Green New Deal talking about a massive increase in the role of state investment. And if you look at World War II mobilization, if you look at, at the New Deal, I think you do see the beginnings of that. But at the end of the day, it always gets turned back over to the private sector. And so I think this time around, yes, we do have to make the argument for public institutions. And we probably have to change the state. Emmanuel Wallerstein, who is a great Marxist, you know, he joked that by the 1970s, the entire global left had a two-step program, seize the state and then change it. Yep. But in every part of the world, they had achieved the first at some point or another and had utterly failed at the second. So I think that is a daunting long-term goal um, to really transform public institutions so that they're not just Washington, D.C. on steroids, but truly responsive multiple institutions that ordinary people are in control of. That's perfect, Daniel Aldana Cohen. I'm going to have you back so we can talk a little bit about the obstacles and opportunities to make that happen and the resistance and political support. We don't really have the time to go into that today, but you've done a lot of suggesting, and I think if people are following, they're going to get what you mean. And I'll encourage listeners to go out and read your pieces in Jacobin that are in the Green New Deal series, also at The Nation, and your book that'll be coming out in November from Verso, A Planet to Win, Why We need a Green New Deal. Daniel Aldana Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at Penn, and he directs the, this sounds pretty cool, not sure what it means, the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative, and has been writing about the Green New Deal for a long time. And thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me, Susie. It's so great to talk about the Green New Deal. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.